from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the, the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have to only keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will regain glory for myself over Pharaoh, all of his army, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front and took its place behind them. And it came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. No one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their left and on their right. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, last week we uh, left off uh, by naming the reality that faced the people of God as God had led them to double back on this wilderness journey, as God had hardened Pharaoh's heart to pursue them, to once more enslave them in the land of Egypt, we said that they were closed off, pursued, and overtaken. I didn't use these terms last week, but I will this week. They were in a moment where they needed a miracle. They needed a miracle to live they needed a miracle to survive. They needed a miracle to escape Pharaoh's merciless army. They needed God to intervene. God was going to have to do something. They were hemmed in by the sea, hemmed in by the wilderness. Pharaoh's army had overtaken them. They needed God to act. They needed a miracle. And that's exactly what the narrator tells us God delivered. A miracle. The sea parted like two walls, and the land was dry, and the people of God passed through the sea on dry land and were able to continue on this journey home. I have a question for you this morning as we begin. Have you ever prayed for a miracle? Have you ever prayed for a miracle? Have you ever been uh, in the shoes of the disciples, metaphorically speaking? Have you ever been 
in that boat. And the seas and the waves of life come crashing in to the point where it feels like you or someone you love is or actually perishing. And, and maybe even you feel like God may be in the boat with you, but, but God's asleep. And you have to wake God from God's slumber because you need a miracle. You need God to intervene. You need God to wake up. And, and, and can you hear yourself saying the words that the disciples said in that boat to Jesus? Please do something. Act. Intervene. Have you ever prayed for a miracle? When I was contemplating this question for my own life and faith, another question popped into my head. It's related to this question. What exactly am I praying for when I pray for a miracle? What am I praying for when I pray for a miracle? In other words, when we say or contemplate praying for a miracle, there is an underlying assumption that we know what a miracle actually is. That we have a preconceived notion of, of what of, or how we define this word miracle. Simply put, how do we define miraculous? When I'm praying for a miracle, how do I define it? Or how do you define it? What is a miracle? For the vast majority of us, our concept or definition of miracles, whether we know it or not, has been profoundly shaped by something called scholastic theology. It was the dominant academic way to do theology in medieval times. And it's most acutely uh, uh, noted in the work of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas was writing in the 13th century, and he basically set the baseline definition for miracles. He basically gave us a single sentence, in fact, that, that has shaped the way we understand the miraculous. This is what he says. Those happenings are properly called miraculous, which are done by divine agency outside the commonly observed order of things. There are two components of this definition. First, an affirmation of God's agency. That a miracle entails not the work of a human being, but the very work of God intervening in a particular way, in a moment of time, with particular people who are experiencing, rather, a particular event. It's God's agency, not human beings. And the second part of this definition, the occurrence happens outside the ordinary. It happens outside of the natural course of this world and our understanding of it. Said differently, the event defies or it subverts the laws of nature, the laws of the material world, scientific understanding and all that it entails and how it has framed our understanding of the way in which the world works. That's what Aquinas argued to be a miracle. God's agency, and it's an act that subverts the natural order of things. Well, since the time of Hume and Hegel in the 18th century with the Enlightenment and, 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 and the Renaissance and the Reformation, all of these historical, intellectual, uh, and political movements, since that time in the 18th century... The, the notion of the miraculous 
has been held with great skepticism. Hegel, in particular, who was a theist, he did believe in God, nonetheless identified God with the laws of nature. And he argued that God could not act in the way that Aquinas was suggesting. That God created the universe in such a way that God was bound by the laws of nature. And so God couldn't act to subvert those laws. God couldn't act in a way that was contrary to the ways in which this mechanical universe works. Hegel contended then that the miracle stories of Jesus, like the one that Kevin read for us this morning, this miracle story where Jesus calms the sea, Hegel says this is just sort of a, a, a literary trick. It, it didn't really happen. What, what the early community is trying to do is point to the moral authority of Jesus. It's not a literal experience, but, but it's to show the way the early community gave reverence to this one called Jesus of Nazareth, emphasizing his ethical and moral authority. Hegel's interpretation, starting in the 18th century, really launched... Uh, the, the, the project in liberal Christianity known as demythologization. And what that simply means is that we approach the scriptures and the articles of our faith in such a way that does not read stories like the ones we heard this morning in a literal way. That their import is not to talk about God's intervening power that subverts the natural order of things, but rather liberal Christianity says the, the import for the Christian faith is completely and totally categorically humanistic. It is moral. It is ethical. Jefferson took that, those words to heart. Thomas Jefferson, he took his Bible, he took the New Testament, and he eliminated every miracle story. He even eliminated the resurrection. He ends the New Testament witness. He changes it. He ends the story in this way. The disciples simply walk away sad when the tomb was sealed off with a stone. This way of thinking is still operative in, in many branches of the Christian life today in many churches, including many Presbyterian churches where we want to move away from this miracle sense of God's activity, that God simply cannot and does not act in this way. Now, I assume that many of us have a similar skepticism in relationship to this conversation, not because we lack faith, but because we have been formed in uh, sort of Hegel's world. We, we've been formed under the, the, this scientific and, and data-driven observation reality. And I'm not critiquing it at this point. I'm just saying this is what it is. We function in a very scientific way. And for all that science has given us, we say thank you. For the ways in which it has advanced human life, we say thank you. And we're, we're grateful. But there is a moment, isn't there, for, for a person of faith who is deeply grateful for what science has given us in our time and in our place and throughout the past 250 years, while at the same time trying to affirm some of the core convictions of the Christian story, 
right? Because according to Aquinas, two central events in our faith and life together, they would fit the category of miracle. Number one, that God would in fact take on flesh and dwell among us. And number two, that this one Jesus of Nazareth, who was God in the flesh, who was crucified in a brutal execution, would be raised on the third day. According to Aquinas, those are miracles. But in our world, we just don't see that. We don't see God taking on flesh. We don't see the dead being raised. C.S. Lewis describes it, I think, in a succinct way. He says, a naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. Do you follow that? Like if we start to move away and start to move past these quote-unquote miracle stories, including the anchor of our faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you strip away the essence of Christianity itself. And we live then in that tension. Can you feel that? That tension of what is commonly observed in the world and the claims that the Christian gospel makes. I do wonder, however, what is at stake if we frame this only as a binary conversation. So much of our dialogue in all spheres of life is binary, isn't it? In this case in particular, it's between science and faith or between miracles and materialism. Interestingly enough, in the scriptures, there's actually no Hebrew or Greek word that translates one-to-one -one in English as the word miracle. It's just not there. When these acts happen, when God parts the seas or when, when God stills the storm, the words that are often used by the writers are words like signs and wonders and power. Part of the challenge here is that when we think about miracles, and when we think about what it means to pray for a miracle, we're, we're thinking about it in terms of the way Aquinas set it up, right? God's divine agency that is outside of what is normally observed. That's what we think of, many of us, when we pray for a miracle. But I wonder if there's a way to reframe our talk that is actually influenced by the scriptures and this notion of God's activity to be seen as a sign or, or as power or that, that displays an amazement amongst the people. I wonder if there's a different way to frame it than Aquinas frames it. Because what if miracles also include God's activity in what is normally observed? What if miracles can take place in the ordinary? What if miracles can take place in that which is, which is common, that which is expected, that which is right in front of us? What if the word miracle can be applied not just when, when the seas are parted or when the storms are stilled, but what if it can be applied to the ordinary moments of our existence? Now, I want to be very clear here. I am not referencing in any way self-help religiosity that says something like, make your own miracles. The heavy theological lifting we're going to do from here on out completely affirms the agency of God. It's been a theme throughout this series, if you've been hanging around, that God is not dead. 
that God is active and alive in human history. I want to affirm that, but I want to affirm that God's signs of power can bring amazement in the ordinary moments of our lives. And I would suggest to you that that too is miraculous. In this framework, we all should be praying, I think, for miracles. If we believe that miracles are not just about the extraordinary, but they are also about the ordinary aspects of our lives. Let me give just a few examples of this. See, I think forgiveness and reconciliation, for example, can be a miracle. I mean, just think in your own heart right now, not, not going to judge anybody here, not going to ask anybody to, to have their own moment of confession, but there are people in your life, right, who have wounded you. And you cannot, even at this point, bring yourself to forgive them. You can't. You may have never said it this way, but this statement may resonate. It would take a miracle for me to forgive them. It would take a miracle for us to be reconciled. And we're just talking about the, the ordinary, ordinariness of relationships, the joys and the struggles, the hardships, and, and the tough work it takes to maintain healthy relationships. That's the ordinary. It's ordinary to be hurt. It's ordinary to be let down. And it's extraordinary sometimes for forgiveness to come and reconciliation to come. Here, here's a story that fits this idea. Uh, there's a couple I know called Tim and Sharon. They were married for 30 plus years when Tim admitted a decade old affair. He admitted it in his own words. He, he said this to me. He said, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit to confess this. I realized it was a sin in my life. I realized I was betraying my wife and our covenantal vows. And so he repented, he confessed it to her, and he sought forgiveness. It did not come right away. It took time. I know she thought it would take a miracle for me to forgive him. But she opened herself and he opened himself to God's grace. And they started to, to move toward each other, confessing more things both ways, seeking God's forgiveness in this moment, seeking God's activity of grace in this moment. And, and, a, and a year after he confessed, we were standing in a sanctuary like this one. They were standing up front with, with friends and their children and, and other family members, and we renewed their vows. And I can tell you, each and every one of us thought that was a miracle. Given what we knew of this situation, it was a miracle of God's grace that forgiveness was realized and reconciliation occurred. I think about it in my own life. I've shared this before. I, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer in 2009, and by all accounts, the way they discovered it, at least one doctor said it to me this way, it was a total fluke. I had no symptoms of a nine centimeter uh, a cancer growing on the right pole of my kidney. I had no symptoms. It was accidental, but I look at that as a sign of God's power, God's power to uncover it. And then, and then I see it as a sign of God's power that brought me wonder and amazement as that church surrounded our family in a very Presbyterian way through prayer and casseroles. <laughs> I saw God's power in Katie 
as she was ever faithful with me walking this journey. I saw God's power in the relationship I developed with my surgeon who removed this cancer from my body. Who will tell you that he has a call from God to be a doctor? That's a miracle in the ordinary. God showing up and moving and acting through signs of power that bring us amazement when these things take place in our lives. Now, if I ended the sermon here, we'd be in some trouble. Because there is a challenge when doing this theological lifting. If we simply leave it at that, we raise some hard questions that I do not think we need to raise because I think we need to say more. And what I'm getting at is, it's like when, when an accident happens and, and one person dies and one person lives and we say, well, that person received a miracle because they lived and we have nothing to say about the other person. Where was God's miracle for them? Because you know what? Marriages that experience the things that my friends experience actually end. Where's their miracle of forgiveness and reconciliation? Cancer diagnosis, they actually bring death from time to time. Where's their miracle? See, we've got to keep doing the heavy theological lifting here because one of the most challenging aspects of this conversation, I think, is seeing signs of God's power and presence even when the outcomes do not meet or match the hopes of our heart. Is it possible to still see God's miracles when the marriage ends or the person we love dies? Can we still see God at work Dana Olson Getty is a pastor for a Mennonite church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Eight years ago, she wrote an article for the Christian Century. Dana was pregnant at the time, and she noted that once she passed the 12-week threshold that she breathed a sigh of relief. She was past that, that peak of the danger area for a miscarriage. Six weeks after that, she felt the baby move for the first time. But when she went for her 20th week ultrasound, she and her husband, Eric, received devastating news. The baby that she was carrying had a fatal birth defect. His skull never formed. So the doctor said the reality is this. He's, he's either going to die in utero or he'll be born and live just a few moments or maybe a few hours and maybe just a few days. But, but that's it. When I read her story, I... I was profoundly influenced and shaped by it because it calls us to remember that even when the outcomes don't meet the desires of our hearts, it doesn't mean that God is not active. It doesn't mean that God isn't working a miracle. It's just as we said last week that God is working in a way that maybe we cannot understand. Her own words, I desperately want Ethan that's the name they gave the baby, to be born whole. I would give up one of my own arms or legs if it meant that Ethan's skull could close over and his brain form normally. But I'm not praying for a miracle. I'm not capable of praying for healing while simultaneously preparing for Ethan's death. I have to choose one or the other. 
The two possibilities are simply too much for me to hold together. Eric and I only have this one opportunity now in these days of waiting to parent Ethan well. We don't want to waste this precious opportunity by denying the reality that his life will be very short or by failing to acknowledge that what he needs most from us is our preparation to care for him in his dying. Over the past few weeks, Eric and I have begun these strange and unexpected tasks of parenting. With our hospice team, we've started working on a written plan for Ethan's medical care so that he will be protected from pain and surrounded with love as much as possible during the few moments of his life. I've been searching for the right scripture text and liturgy for his funeral. Although I haven't found the strength yet to buy anything, I've begun to think about the kind of clothes Ethan will need for his birth and burial. All the while, he kicks away inside of my womb, letting us know that he is still full of life and energy. These are not the tasks I expected to carry out during pregnancy, and they certainly are not on the monthly to-do list in my pregnancy books. But they are what Ethan needs from us now. I've not been praying for the miracle of his healing, but I've been taking great comfort in the miracle that is already assured. The miracle that Ethan's life will not end with his death, but will be joined to the eternal life of the God who made him and gave him to us. Sometimes this promise is offered to people who are grieving as if somehow it's supposed to take away the pain of burying a loved one. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't. My body is still going to ache for him when we come home from the hospital without him. Years from now, I will still feel the pain of his absence and wonder about the person he would have grown up to be. But there is something about his life, the life that God put in him, that is not fragile like his body. In this way, Ethan is no different from any of us. Our bodies are frail and fallible too. And they will all die sooner or later. But we have the promise of resurrection into a life that is not constrained by our frailty. And that comes from the one who breathed life into all creation. Katie and I read this story as our devotion yesterday. And the first thing that she said to me was this. It is a miracle that she wrote this. I said, you're absolutely right. It's a sign, isn't it? Of God's power, even in the most harshest of circumstances. It's a sign of God's intervention that even though there is not much light, there still glimmers for this family the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I totally understand what it means to not pray for a miracle because if she's talking about the Aquinas way, I get it because there are times when we simply cannot form those words. It's too much for us to bear. But what if God's miracles come in moments like this one in the ordinary? in the ordinary of life and death, in the ordinary of love and caring for a child who's dying. What if the miracle of all miracles is claimed by us?
the miracle that there is victory in death. What a gift this is for those of us who cannot pray for an Aquinas miracle. Might we learn to pray that we are swept up in the miracle of all miracles, that God has overcome death. May that be our miracle too. Amen.